This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. This episode is made possible by Rio Products. Over 20 years ago, Rio was the first fly line company to develop and sell a fly line designed specifically for spay casting, the good old wind cutter. From there, Rio developed the first commercially available Skagit line, and soon after was the first company to introduce the MoTip system, specific tips powerful enough to turn over typical winter steelhead flies. Real remains dedicated to simplifying spay with a host of videos and resources for the consumer, all found at Spay Central at www.realproducts.com. Mark Bachman owns the fly fishing shop in Welch's, Oregon, one of the most famous fly shops on the West Coast. He started it in 1981 and has been an industry leader since. I met up with Mark at his shop to see if I could share the story of one of America's most valuable retailers. But what I learned was the story of a man who is much more than just a successful entrepreneur. I was born in Pomona, California, and... When I was born, my father was in Normandy in July of 1944. You just don't strike me as 73. Like, you don't look like a 73-year-old. Well, I get that all the time. Let's let's talk about why you still look so young. Uh, you were telling me that you still guide three days a week. Do you think it's keeping you young? Well, it gives, gives me a, an excuse to exercise. You know, I'm wading around in rivers and rowing boats and setting up camps and tearing down camps and all that kind of stuff. 
being out in the fresh air. It's allowed me to reach a senior age without turning into a total cream puff. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to your dad then. So did your father fish? My father didn't do much fishing. He was a he was a rancher. Incidentally, he he died when he was 98, and I think that he was actually pretty healthy when he died. I think he just basically got tired of living. Oh, was your mom around? No, my mother died when she was 60. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Okay, so what about siblings? Did you have any brothers or sisters? I have two sisters, and they're both alive and happy and all that kind of stuff. Were you a middle child? No, I was the oldest. Oh, okay. So you had responsibility from Well, I had two little sisters I had to pick on all the time, you know. Did you pick on them or take care of them? Oh, who knows? It it probably would vary with the story from each one of us, actually. Okay. (laughs) Where does fishing come into your life then? I was born with the fishing gene. It's just something that I wanted to do. And and for whatever reason, I did a lot of fly fishing. I experimented with other kinds of fishing, but fly fishing was always the draw. And this is in California? No. Uh, my father got out of the service. Uh, my mother and dad moved to Willamina in Oregon, and they had, I don't know, 14 acres or something there. My dad always wanted to be a farmer, and and eventually uh, the little place there at Willamina got too small, and he went to northern Idaho and bought 80 acres and moved his family to northern Idaho between Sandpoint and Bonners Ferry, Idaho, and and that's where I grew up. And eventually he put a lot of different parcels of land together and, you know, built himself a pretty good place. Wow, okay, so you went from California. Did you go with your parents to Oregon then? Oh, yeah. And how old were you then? Little, you know, a couple of years old. Okay, and then going to Idaho, you, so from a few years old onwards till you were about how old? We moved to Idaho when I was in the second grade. okay. Got it. And then how long did you stay in Idaho for? Oh, I stayed until after I graduated out of high school. I think I left northern Idaho about 1963. Okay. Were you fishing when you were in school? Oh, yeah. The the ranch that my father owned had a stream called Grouse Creek, ran right through the middle of it. We owned about a mile and a half of Grouse Creek, which was one of the major spawning tributaries, the Pondre Lake system, which had, you know, giant cameloops and bull trout and that kind of stuff in those days, so... For a kid that liked to fish, I grew up in paradise. Yeah. Were you close with your dad? Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, sure. And your sisters, did they like to go out fishing with you? Not so much, no. Okay. Now, what were you like in high school? Were you Did you have lots of like-minded friends, or were you kind of on your own? Well, I've always been pretty independent, and uh, yeah, I got along good in high school. I got decent grades. I, you know, played sports and this and that, but, you know, fishing, for whatever reason, was the driving thing in my life, the fishing gene, so to speak, I think. Yeah, so people really are actually born with this fascination. I don't know if it's a draw to the water or a draw to the fish. Do you you have one that really defines you? Well, that's a hard question to answer, really, since they're kind of interdependent. And, uh, you know, I I like trout fishing, and uh, I've done a lot of different kinds of, of fishing with a fly rod and with other tackle as well, but I was always drawn to salmonids for whatever reason, I guess because they're kind of neat to look at. And then what about college? Did you end up going to college? Never went to college. Did you ever want, did you ever aspire to go to college? No, I thought about it. Yeah. Other things got in the way though. What got in the way? Earning money. Yeah. You know, and and having too much of a good time as well. I kind of wish I had gone to college. 
What would you have taken? Oh, I'd have got myself a business degree. Looking back at it, you know, that would have been the smartest thing I could have done. Do you think that you could have applied a degree to your business now, or would you have gone down a totally separate avenue? No, one never knows. Yeah, it's tough to um, not knowing. You know, I got married in Idaho. How old were you when you married Patty? No, that was this. This was this was a different woman. Nine years. I was married for nine years. I had all four of my kids with the previous marriage. Okay, gotcha. Okay. And how old were you when you got married? Twenty. Oh wow, you got married really young. Yes, I did. That's a lot of responsibility. So, by the time that you were twenty-nine, you had four children. Yeah, absolutely. I had two boys and two girls. Oh, okay. So I haven't met your daughters, I don't think. I've met both your sons, but I don't think I've met your daughters. So from there, then, you move on with your your life. What are you doing to make money in that decade for those 10 years? I ran heavy equipment. I was a heavy equipment operator. I ran, you know, caps and graders and backhoes and that kind of stuff and and did construction and demolition primarily. My parents sold a cattle ranch in Idaho, and they moved to Estacada here in Oregon. I came down with my ex-wife, and I had one child at the time. Came came here in 1964 to to visit my parents for Christmas, and I got here just before the the big flood in 1964, the Christmas Day flood. And of course, when the water went down, there was a lot of work for a guy that knew about heavy equipment and construction and demolition and that kind of stuff. So I went to work here and moved here. Okay. Okay. This is all starting to come together now. And basically, I didn't think about starting a a retail fly fishing shop while I was doing the heavy equipment thing. It was much later. I finally went through a divorce and I needed a job that I didn't have to take home anything with me at night because I had some kids to raise. I got uh, custody of my four kids. Oh, wow. Okay. And I was a single parent for a couple of years. And then Patty and I got together, and she'd been a single parent for a couple of years. Uh And uh, we joined forces. I I told her one day, I said, you know, I'm tired of, you know, getting dirty every day and so on and so forth. I want to try something else. So I went to work for a sporting goods store. And uh, the guy told me, he says, yeah, I'll hire you, but you, you won't make it here. And I said, well, why not? And he says, I don't think you like people that much. Okay. And I said, well, <laughs> I'll work on that. And, and six months later, I'm, I'm managing the place for him. And so you're in your early 30s at this That's point. That's right, yeah. Eventually, uh, I took that, that place from about, uh, about 200 about 2,000 square feet, I think, when we got done remodeling, it was about 9,000 square feet. I did that in four and a half years. And then for a number of reasons, it was time to move on. Yeah. And uh, went went back in the construction business for a while, uh, building houses just in time to get into the, the 1979-80 meltdown in the housing market. Oh <laughs> Took God. a huge bath in that. Yeah. And um, couldn't find a job in the construction trades because there just wasn't anything going on. And and finally decided, well, if I couldn't find something to do like that, we just uh, um, put together a fly fishing specialty shop because that had been kind of a side dream of mine. And we started tying flies on the dining room table. You and Patty? And the kids. Oh, my God. This is incredible. Okay. Yeah. And, and you know, and then, you know, eventually it morphed into what we've got now. 
Right. So well, tell, tell us a little bit about your shop. Well, I think we've got one of the, one of the larger shops on the West Coast in the United States. Uh, our showroom is about 3,000 square feet. This building is about 6,000 square feet. Some of it's warehouses and, you know, and photographic studios and that kind of stuff like that. What has allowed us to have a shop in a little place like Waltz's, Oregon, is the fact that we have global reach through our website. The Internet basically went public in, in April of 1995, and by May of 1995, we were already online. So we were one of the first shops to, to have a, a website. Of course, it was nothing then like it is now, but that's what's kind of you know, helped us survive in a small area with a, you know, a fairly substantial fly fishing enterprise. Why did you choose a shop? I mean, so many guys, when they're in that situation, they've got some kids and they have a supportive wife. That's key here. They go into guiding and they stay away from retail. Why did you choose to go into retail? Yeah, I kind of went the other way around. Mm -hmm. Um, Patty and I had a couple of partners when we started out and one of those left pretty soon, and the other one stayed around for quite a while. But my attitude was that I didn't want a guide, that my fishing time was too valuable to me, that that was my recreational time. And then, you know, I was going to hire guides because I knew I needed a guiding operation. And then I figured out that I didn't know anything about guiding, and I probably ought to try it out before I hired some guides. So I, you know, put everything together and started taking people fishing and got hooked on it. And what was this? What year do you think this uh, was? It would have been 1981. We started this business in uh, April 21st of 1981. I didn't know any of this. I didn't know that the kids were involved either. Oh, yeah. The kids tied all the flies for our initial inventory. Several of them went on to be in the, in the fly fishing industry. Several of the kids. It wasn't only just my kids. It was part of some of the neighborhood kids as well. You know, some of them developed into just absolutely excellent fly tires as well. Some of them, you'll know their names. You know, Brian Sylvia is one of them. He's, you know, fairly famous guide now. And, uh, you know, Troy Bachman, of course, is my oldest son. You know, he developed a, a fly tying company in Mexico. And, uh, you know, it developed into a pretty good-sized fly tying company. I think he had 175 people working for him at one time. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. that's he's, He sold at the Umqua Feather Merchants, and, and that company has been just. Dis- Disbanded. You know, it's been a family enterprise. Mm-hmm. Patty has been totally supportive. I think that Patty's main thing in, in life is is just keeping me happy. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> She's yeah. a good woman. Oh, absolutely. Couldn't yeah. have made it in this in any business like this without her. You know, she's a an equal partner in every respect. And uh you know, I just try and keep up. What were the major struggles when you guys first went into business? Oh, it's uh you know, there's there's only one struggle in business, really. Cash flow, mm-hmm. cash flow, cash flow. Have you seen a lot of stuff change in the industry with retail? Oh, there's been some there's been some changes. You know, some from my you know, from my opinion, you know, some for the better, some for the worse. It doesn't matter, you know, and you're in business every day is a new adjustment. You know, everything on earth adapts to survive every day, or it doesn't survive. So businesses have to change. You know, little businesses, big businesses, doesn't matter. You know, businesses like you know, Chrysler Motor Company, you know, mm. you know they, can, they can get themselves in trouble. So, you know, being in a, in a retail business is a struggle. There's no doubt about it. 
It's a trendy business. It's also one that's immensely social. So you not only have to fit the trends in the retail market, you also have to fit the the attitudes of individual anglers, uh, most of which are pretty easy to put up with, actually. Yeah, most of them are, are are pretty easy to get along with. I know that I couldn't own a fly shop because I need my own space, and I don't want to always feel like I'm talking about fishing. Did you ever go through a stage in your career where you just didn't want to talk about it? Did you get grouchy? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. As I'm, everyone who knows you starts you know, laughing. I was I was born in July, so, you know, I fit under the cancer sign, so I'm naturally kind of crabby anyway, so I guess. So, yeah, no, there's no doubt, you know, that once in a while I just got to walk off from it for a few hours and grab a rod and disappear for a while and and uh you know flowing water has always been my healer so people that know me you know there's certain ones that just say hey it's time get out of here go fishing you know i feel an energy in your emails and in your correspondence you've got this like the zen flow to you these days where honestly i thought that you taken some sort of meditation workshop or that you'd discovered yoga. I mean, I can't put my finger on it. So did you have some sort of life change where you just decided you were going to view life differently? Like, where's your head at these days? <laughs> well, those are all, all good questions. I didn't realize I was going to be psychoanalyzed with a microphone in my hand. Sorry. <laughs> but uh, um, no, I think I'm more at peace sometimes. Um uh, Publicly, I am. I'm not sure that Patty would agree, but uh, you know, after a while, you just realize how small you are, and, and that there's only certain certain things that you can do, certain things that you can accomplish. And you know, the universe is a big place, mm. and you know, you see fish runs come and go. You see, you know, rivers come and go. You know, like I said, I was a heavy equipment operator, so I've been on all sides of all environmental questions and all that stuff. You know, I've been the worst thing and the best thing that ever happened to the watershed that I live in, actually. And, you know, you see damage that you did with big cats and stuff heal up, go away, can't even find it. You know, you see whole forests that were buried in pyroclastic flows emerging out of the bottom of the river and then plants growing on top of the stumps. Right. You know, and you just realize that it all happens beyond your control sometimes. You know, a lot of things, you know, happen that you think you don't want to have happen. And then you go look back 30 years and say, well, you know, it happened and it's for the better, actually. Mm-hmm. So, well, when I think of the shop, and I'll bring it back to your, to the shop. I won't pick you apart. I won't dissect you too bad on the show, even though that's kind of what we do here. Uh, the shop. So when I think about stores, I always think of traps. So... People will contact me all the time and they'll say, I want to follow my dream and I want to work in the fly fishing industry. I'm either going to A, become a guide or B, open a shop. And I always say, Jesus, like explore guiding, fine. Just know that there's, there's, you're going to run into some limitations as you get older. But the shop, I always am very quick to explain that unless you're willing to really have, uh, or unless you have a real strong business sense, I've just seen a lot of shops go under or get trapped. And when I think of your shop, you're in my top five. Am I telling the wrong advice? Is it easy to own a shop? Well, one thing that a guy's got to know if he's going to start a fly fishing shop is it's not going to be anything like you think it's going to be. It's going to be a business. You have to run it as a business. 
And you have to realize that in any business, there's a lot of sacrifice. You know, that nothing comes for free. That uh, you know, you're going to work long hours. You know, you're going to have to be dedicated to it. You're going to have to pay a lot of attention to the people that you hire, the people that you surround yourself with. Um, it can be dog-eat-dog. You know, fly shops are as competitive as as law firms or, or motor companies, you know. I mean, it's a, it's a business. What do you think is the biggest misconception people have when they open shops? Oh, that they're just not going to have to work. They can just hang out with their buddies and the cash is going to flow over the counter and, you know, and so on and so forth. But the fact of the matter is that uh, it's just kind of like fishing. You know, you got to make the right presentations to the right fish. You know, and if you're in the catch and release, you take their money and you turn them loose at the till. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just exactly the way it is because cash flow is everything. Unless you're born with a trust fund or something, you probably shouldn't get into a fly shop unless you're a really tough sucker. That's fair. So what was your biggest eye-opener? Just exactly that. Did you go into it being one of those guys thinking it was going to be kind of a hang with your buddies? I just can't see you being that guy. <laughs> I can't see Mark Bachman being like, I'm going to open a shop so I can hang with my bros. I, just don't, I don't see it. Uh, well, you know, I grew up on a cattle ranch. I've been working since I was nine years old. You know, when I was, uh, when I was in grade school, you know, I was a little skinny guy with a loud mouth. So, you know, <laughs> life can be hard on a little skinny guy with a loud mouth unless you got really strong hands. And my hands were really strong for milking four cows every morning before I went to school. <laughs> so I was under no illusion that it wasn't going to take a lot of hard work. And I work harder than anybody I've ever employed. I think most of the people that I've employed that haven't stuck around just couldn't keep up. And that's the fact of the matter. They just thought it was going to be easy that, you know, that all you had to do was lean with your butt on the back counter and, and pontificate about how good a fisherman you are and the people are just going to throw money at you. Yeah. And it just doesn't work that way. <laughs> right. It's just, you know, you got to be thinking and your hands got to be moving all the time. Mm-hmm. But you're 73 years old. So where's your out? I mean, you're healthy. You guide three days a week. You're out there. But... At some point, are you planning on slowing down a little bit? Oh, I imagine. And time will tell me when that comes. Mm, That's fair. If you could do things differently, would you have gone into a different industry? Not necessarily, but the first thing I would have done differently is I would have got myself a college education in business and finance, so I would have known more about the business end of things. Okay. uh, I feature myself as the prime example that you can be you know, you, you said that I'm really smart, but you wouldn't have always said so if you'd been in business with me because I made a lot of, mis- a lot of mistakes in business and been able to survive them just simply because I wouldn't give up. But I think almost all businesses, almost all small businesses that make it, you know, have some of that in there. I mean, not everything's going to be gravy. You know, some days are just hard days. Some months are hard months. Some years are hard years. Mm-hmm. And uh, and sometimes they're because you did something wrong, and other times they're because uh, the circumstances are such that uh, you just can't crawl out of it no matter what. So you just got to hang on until things turn better. Did you ever have a year or a season where you thought, we're just not going to make it out of this? Yeah, 2008. Oh, yeah. And then uh, in three quarters, 
we lost 40% of our business. Oh, that's and the uh, worst part of it was that uh, the, the first two quarters of 2008 were just gangbusters. 2007 was a really up year. Uh, money was flowing. Things were uh, actually was reaching the goals that I had set and felt pretty good about things. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, the third quarter of 2008, the rug was pulled out and, and three quarters of a year later, I'd lost 40% of the business. Plus, because, you know, things were so good to be, you know, beforehand, why we were stretched out a little too far as well. Mm-hmm. We were, we were lucky. Well, we were lucky, and then we worked hard, and you know, and we'd set a, a good record with uh, you know, our vendors and that kind of stuff that you know that they'd get their money and so on and so forth. So we'd build up enough trust that people didn't slam the door in our face, and as well, that's a key part of you know that's a key part of business is you, people got to trust you. Yeah, well, and you guys have been around for so long that I'd say you probably have that trust. It seems like you do. Uh, Your uh, reputation sure is out there. We uh, we work hard at that. Yeah, but now you're in Welch's, Oregon. So how many people is Welch's actually? Is it like a town? What am I calling it? Welch's is a village. Welch's Welch's is an unincorporated village. <laughs> okay, what's the population of Welch's? Oh, I think right in the immediate area, there's about five thousand people. Okay, so I mean, this is not like you're in a big area or a big city where people are coming through, but. People are going out of their way to get to you. Are you getting a lot of your business from fishermen in the season or passing traffic and or online? Where's your traffic from? All of the above. There's there's over 10,000 cars a day go past our door oh. here on Highway 26. It's one of the main avenues between Portland and Central Oregon. We're, we're really uh, actually the quickest path from from Portland to Central Oregon, the Deschutes and all of that stuff over there. So that's part of the reason why we've been able to survive here. Uh, plus the local watershed. You know, we have steelhead year-round, which is huge. And, you know, we are the steelhead shop in the area. We've been the steelhead shop since we opened up because we were into fishing for winter steelhead with flies before anybody even knew it was possible. But when you were uh, here in the 80s, people weren't really about fly fishing for steelhead? Well, when I was here in the 80s, people there wasn't very many people into fly fishing, period. Oh, really? Even so, out here in Oregon? But so, it's so close to California. So here's, here's the deal. I made one foray down into Oregon in 1963 and wound up working for the North Umpqua, working for the Umpqua National Forest on the North Umpqua River at Steamboat, right in the... The ranger station and the bunkhouse that I stayed in was right across the river from the steamboat inn. Oh. And Frank and Jeannie Moore. Yeah. So, which was a pretty good place to land for a guy that was interested in fly fishing. And, of course, you know, steelhead are big fish, and I was always interested in big fish. And and I caught a couple steelhead out of the Umpqua River. And then I went back to northern Idaho, and then you heard the story about the 1964 flood and all that stuff. Well, in... March of 1965, I moved into the area that we live in right now and came up here to do flood damage repair. And, you know, being a construction bum, you know, I'd stop for a beer in the evening, you know, and every time I'd, you know, go into one of the local taverns or something, you know, there was always some talk about steelhead fishing because there was a steelhead run here. So 
I started getting interested in it. Nobody fly fished, couldn't find anybody to fly fish. And I, you know, I'd caught a couple steelhead on the North Umpqua with a fly rod because it was fly fishing only. And I thought that's the way you fish for steelhead. So I went out fishing for steelhead in February with a fly rod and, uh, you know, didn't have real good success for a while, but was able to see fish in the river and they were probably spawners. And I didn't even know the difference at the time, but I built myself a shooting head out of a piece of lead core trolling line. Got it. <laughs> and with that, and I'll tell you, it was a horrible uh, apparatus to cast with. It wasn't even one of the plastic coated lead core trolling lines, you know, <laughs> so it'd get kinks and stuff in it. And when you hit yourself with it, it was like getting hit with a bullwhip. <laughs> and uh, uh, and I wasn't a very good fly caster in those days as well. But eventually, you know, I caught about a dozen winter steelhead with my fly rod that winter. And, uh, and some of them were really bright, good fish as well. And, you know, then somebody come along and told me, oh, hell, you can't even catch winter steel out of a fly rod. But I knew that wasn't true. Yeah. You know? But I did, of course, buy myself a spinning rod, and I ranged up and down the river. And, you know, the fly tackle that I had wasn't like anything like the fly tackle we've got today. And, but I, for in the, maybe the next 10 years, I kind of switched off back and forth. I'd fly fish for a while, and then I'd take various kinds of drift gear out and use that as well. And even got to the point that I was pulling plugs out of a drift boat and, you know, all that, all that stuff. So I went the full circle in that. About 1980, you know, I realized that I like fly fishing so much better. I, did, I quit the other, quit the other kind of fishing, not because I got a lot against it, but just because it was more fun to catch them with a fly rod. But I fished the Sandy River in the wintertime for 20 years before I ever saw another angler that wasn't fishing with me. Seriously? Seriously. And, you know, there just was nobody that really thought that you could catch winter steelhead with a fly rod. Coming up, Mark and I continue our conversation about catching winter steelhead on the fly. Again, thank you to Rio for their ongoing support. Rio has a complete range of lines designed for spay casting and for switch rods. Regardless of what a consumer's skill level is or which style of spay casting is preferred, Rio has got a line for it all. Be sure to check them out at www.rioproducts.com. I knew that you could catch winter steel out of the flies. I guided for a while, uh, you know, pulling plugs and using gear and, you know, and I was good at it as well. You know, they were pretty damn simple to catch with drift gear, I thought. And, uh, you know, that part of my guide career was very successful. But, you know, it seems as though the guys that fished gear all the time, the only thing they were interested in was meat. And uh, I could already see that we were so efficient with drift gear that we were, you know, we were really really killing a lot of fish Mm -hmm. and so i decided that i didn't want to do that so i just you know got into fly fishing business and and went exclusively fly angling for steelhead and guys told me you never make it as a as a guide fishing for winter steelhead with a fly it just sounded stupid to them but we made it work and then of course in 1990 you know trey combs published the steelhead fly fishing and uh you know, in there with some two-handed fly rod stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'd already experimented with two-handed fly rods maybe a couple of years earlier than that. Had no no one around me that knew much about it. 
I'm not a natural caster, so it took me a while to figure out how to cast with a spay rod. Eventually, though, that spay fishing and winter steelhead fishing had a, a large, you know, built a large part of our business because, you know, I pretty much proved the guys around me that you could catch winter steelhead on a pretty regular basis with a two-hand fly rod. And, uh, of course, you know, other anglers saw us being successful and so on and so forth, and eventually they wanted to do it too. And, you know, now if you go out on that same river on any given day, you'll see at least three or four or five or six different spay anglers for every drift fisherman you see. So the yeah. paradigm has really shifted. And I, you know, I can't say that I did it directly, but, you know, I definitely had an influence there. So in the mid-'80s, though, when the guys would come into the shop and they'd say, oh, it's January, it's February, I don't, I'm waiting for summer, did you say to them, hey, guys, you can go fly fishing for winter steelhead? Oh, yeah, but, you know, you got to realize, though, that, you know, the, the 80s in the wintertime, you know, was, was pretty dreary for business. Right. You know, I mean, it was, it was tough. You know, we didn't have a catalog. We didn't have a, a website. You know, we were out on an island, basically, in a little community. You know, people here are supportive of the business, but there's not that many of them that are into fly fishing, so... You know, it was it was tough times, and it's not like you could just hop on the internet to be like, "Hey guys, there's a, there's great fishing happening right now." Yeah. See, that would frustrate me as a business owner, especially back then. You're not really thinking about overpopulating. I mean, at that point, you're just happy to get a couple guys believing you that you can actually catch them. Did you ever battle with your own? I don't want to say selfishness, but your own integrity, where you really wanted to promote that there were steelhead around that could be caught. But you also wanted to keep the fishery to yourself. Oh, constantly. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah, I've, I've trained more of my competitors than anybody deserves to. Yeah, okay, can I ask you that? How do you handle these guys who work for you who then break free and go work for competing shops or competing outfitters? Well, law says you can't kill them. <laughs> that took me by surprise. <laughs> so, you know, you, you figure out some way to get along with them. You yeah. know, or, you know, you figure out some way to out-compete them or... Or whatever, either form alliances or you don't. You know, it's 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 uh, there's there's no rules to that game. Fair enough. What's your opinion on big box stores? I have no opinion. They're big box stores. They're part of the competition. They're, it's not an unfair advantage, as far as I'm concerned. You know, I have a two thousand page website. I can compete with anybody. Yeah, yeah. You really were on top of it with your website. Um, also with the Spayclave, let's talk about that a little bit because uh, I think that that's something that's got to be noted here. Whose idea was it to start the Sandy River Spayclave? Well, that's a good idea. That's something that just fell in my lap, actually, which incidentally is coming up. And um, if you're listening, don't miss it. Mm, I know, reckon it's the best one around. If If you live in Florida and you're listening to this, if you live in New York or Chicago or whatever, don't miss the Sandy River Spay Clay because it's the it's the Woodstock of spay casting events, basically. So the Sandy River Spay Clay came on in the year two thousand. Okay. Was it the first one of its kind? Mm, I don't know about that, and it wasn't even my idea. Okay. So I got a call from a fellow by the name of Fred Evans, who I had really honestly never met. Uh, I talked to him on the telephone. I'd seen his uh, you know, various entries on uh, Spay Pages, which has been around for a long time. And uh, I knew he was a player in the Spay game. 
and he said to me on the phone that there's some guys going to have a spake lay at Oxbow Park, and that would I be interested in participating in it? And you know, I just uh, got rid of a of a partnership that wasn't working quite right, and we we'd uh, bought this building that we're sitting in right now, which was in the kind of repair that needed a, a massive amount of overhaul. And I told, asked this guy, well, what, what do you want me to do? He said, well, there's going to be a bunch of guys and, and they want to learn about spay casting and stuff. And would you bring a bunch of gear down there for them to try out? And, and then I had this vision of all this brand new gear and guys dragging it across the gravel bar and that kind of stuff like that. And I said, well, you know, I'll call you later. I got this thing going on. And, but the remodel on the shop went way smoother than forecasted. The dissolving of the partnership went, uh, you know, a lot easier than I thought it would. And I told Fred, well, I'll get back to you in 30 days or so. And when 30 days was up, I gave him a call and said, okay, now what do you guys need? What do you want to do? And he said, well, we need some some gear. We want to try out different gear and that kind of stuff. And I thought, well, you know, I've got a, a bunch of tackle reps that I've uh, been doing business with. I'll see what they think of it. And I got four of these tackle reps to kind of buy into the situation and bring some gear. You know, they had a lot of demo equipment and stuff. So they set up, you know, four booths. It, uh, it just happened to be at Group Area A in Oxbow Park, which is the best <laughs> the best of all possible locations to have a program like this, you know, right on the Sandy river. And, and we had about 50 people show up, you know, and, and, uh, everybody was kind of ecstatic about that. I thought, well, okay, this is not a big crowd or anything, but you know, whatever. And so at the end of the day, it was a totally disorganized situation. You know, there was no structure to it at all, but everybody had fun. And somebody says, Hey, we ought to do this again. And, and somebody says, well, yeah, Mark will do it. <laughs> and and uh, so that's kind of how that whole thing come about. And and so, you know, I thought about, okay, what what could be the best kind of deal here? So maybe a two-day event would probably be better. And so I got lucky. Cortland Company, which their rep was one of the first guys in the you know, the buy into the Sandy River Spay Clave, he come to me and he says, well, I got this, uh, they just become the U.S. Uh, stronghold for Hardy, the oh. importers for Hardy. And and uh, I said, well, I got this guy by the name of Andy Murray that uh, is interested in your Spay Clave. Would you want to have him do a demonstration? And I thought, well, I don't know anything about this Andy Murray guy, you know, and, and he's like, yeah, probably, you know, and and then later on, I was talking to Simon Gosworth at the time. I'd not met him either. He was working for Rio. And I asked him if he'd be interested. And he kind of hummed and hawed. And I said, you ever hear of this guy by the name of Andy Murray? Andy Murray? Yeah, I know Andy Murray. Of course, they're both Brits, you know. So yeah. I says, well, Andy's coming to spec. I well, if Andy's coming, I better come, you know. And, and think one thing kind of leveraged against another. And then pretty quickly had a, a little program going on. And, you know, and then... That went off pretty good. I think we got about 300 folks out here, and then the program just kind of took on a life of its own. And I think that, you know, our biggest days ever was like 1,200 people showed up. Oh, my God. I mean, I've been to the to your clave. It's incredible. And you've got some fantastic speakers there, too. And everyone gets to try out all the different rods, all the different lines. Oh, yeah. The, the, you know, there's at least a 1,000 fly rods that you could try out. 
with, God, I don't know, George Cook and the Loomis guys kind of go together. Loomis and Sage kind of go together, and they got a table that sometimes is, you know, 15 feet long and four feet wide, and the thing is just covered with fly reels that have different spay lines and stuff on them. So you can take any combination of anything and go there. You know, there's every kind of spay rod there that's worth <laughs> that's worth wiggling. Yeah. <laughs> and you just take it to the river and try it out, you know, for as long as you want to. I just don't know anything that's anywhere near like it anywhere. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Um, I've got a couple of questions for you about conservation, if that's okay. Do you have a particular cause that you're really focused on right now? Well, you know, I was, <laughs> I've had causes. I was mixed up in fishery politics really heavily for almost 40 years. Mm. And I met my goals. I, uh, you know, there's a, <laughs> a lot of people out there that want this or that, but being another guy in November of 1969, got a group together in the, in the Whistle Stop Tavern to get rid of Marmot Dam. 38 years later, Marmot Dam came down. So, um, you know, there was a lot of humps and bumps, you know, in that whole 38 years of politics. Um, so that was my cause. Get rid of Marmot Dam, it's gone. So I feel fulfilled in that nature. Um, costs a lot of time and a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I, I could have built myself a mansion for what that cost, but I'm not sorry for it. And, you know, the politics after the removal of Marmot Dam and during the removal of Marmot Dam would make a hell of a story of Americana, let me tell you, because there's a lot of people that says you'll never get that done or you shouldn't get it done or you couldn't get it done that are now taking credit for getting rid of Marmot Dam as well. So, you know, it's uh, it's just like politics of any kind, you know, you, your your best friend can be your worst enemy at any time. Mm-hmm. It's a dirty game. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of organizations out there. The one that I'm really interested in right now is the Deschutes River Alliance. Yeah, I've been getting some emails from them. It looks like they're really forward-thinking. Oh, yeah, they're really science-based, too. Yeah. And they're, they're really smart. I know all those guys, you know, they're, they're really, really honest, transparent individuals. Uh, they have a, a reasonable cause uh, and a huge enemy. You know, the Deschutes River right now and the fishery in it is kind of in jeopardy because of the way they're managing water withdrawal and how they're doing it at Pelton Dam Complex. The biological stuff in the Deschutes River has changed a lot since they put in their new water tower. The two guys that I know the best in the Deschutes River Alliance are Greg McMillan and Rick Hafley and you know, there's no two better guys on earth than those two. And they're they're tough. They've they've started a lawsuit. They've got recorded a thousand infractions on water quality. This is a big time deal and it's it's a big time adversary with cubic bucks, so you know, it's gonna take a while, but I, I forecast that they will win. That we'll win on that thing. I hope so. What's your proudest accomplishment with the shop? Survival. <laughs> yeah, That's I mean, fair. You know, we're we're 30-some years old. I've seen a lot of shops come and go. I've seen a lot of, you know, a lot of rich kids get into it and blow their whole inheritance on having a fly shop. It's a tough game. It's a great game. And I'll, I'll, 
all tough games are great games. They're not great games unless they are tough, unless right. they do test you. So. See, you are a hard man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's your proudest accomplishment in life? Oh, raising four kids, and they, they come out pretty good, you know, and, and I don't know that I have any big proud accomplishments in life beyond that, actually. Do you think that the shop defines you or you as the shop? Don't know. I don't think that I don't think that would be fair either way, actually. I'm somewhat more complex than just a fly fisherman. Do you care what people think of you? Not so much. Did you ever? Oh, of course. But, you know, after a while, you just do the best you can. You be the best person you can. Um, what about fears? What's your biggest fear? No, I have no fears. This is a one-way, this is a one-way street. You know, there's no sense. Everybody dies. It's inevitable, so I don't fear it anymore. Uh, looking stupid, I've done that enough that I'm used to it. So that's not a fear anymore either. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to have 10 years of just retirement? Is that something that drives you? No, it doesn't drive me. Don't care about retirement. Okay, so you're going to be in the shop till you die. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> I, 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 I can't predict the future, but I can tell you this. Mark Bachman is happy with who he is and where he's at. Whether anybody else is happy about it, I don't know, but I'm happy about it. <laughs> I love it. Um, Mark, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to leave it at that. Is there anything that you would like to add or ask me? Mm, not particularly, no. I've enjoyed this. Yeah. Thank you very much, April. Oh, thanks for sharing your life with us. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thanks for listening. Thank you.